This week on Cross and Crown Radio, while the world continues to suffer under the weight of humanism, what should we as Christians be doing to posture ourselves in righteousness as we consider the future? Should we panic and hope for some vague prophecy to sweep us away? Or should we get busy with the task of Christendom? We'll discuss. Also, our three headlines include... Children's Health Defense says Pfizer and FDA dropped data bombshell on COVID vaccine consumers. But the world is too busy with Putin. Plus, gas prices have reached an all-time high, but who is to be blamed for this? And Idaho considers a bill which would make gender treatment of trans youth a felony. And finally, for our segment, Theonomy or Autonomy. With bills of abolition that seek to make abortion illegal being put forth in places like Oklahoma, Texas, North Carolina, and South Carolina, we'll take a look at the issue of bodily autonomy. What are the arguments, and what does God's law have to say? As always, I'm your host, Jason Garwood. Thank you for watching and listening to Crossing Crown Radio. It doesn't take a PhD in discernment to see that the world is on fire and the caustic policies of autonomous humanism are both malicious and detrimental. Globalists from places like the World Economic Forum are enjoying the show as men like Klaus Schwab and his transhuman hacker friend Yuval Noah Harari push forward their Great Reset agenda. What exactly do they want? A global centralized credit system with digital identification by which they can hack the animals we call humans and thus control them. They want to manage the world's wealth because you and I are obviously too inept to handle such things. It is all about control, and it is all for your safety. Don't forget, there really are communists out there who want you to own nothing and be happy about it. For the past two years, we've suffered through an unprecedented leap forward— pun absolutely intended, in terms of centralized bureaucracies grabbing for more and more control. First, it was the health sector with their DNA-manipulating jab, and now it will be the energy sector. Of course, statism has always had its gnarly mitts in each of those areas, but it doesn't quite have full control, at least not yet. If there's one thing about the great idol of statism that I know, it is this. It does not and cannot stop not until it is put to death. When we consider the war in Ukraine and the various geopolitical dynamics in play, this coming after two years of COVID insanity, it is apparent that we are in a direful situation. Emotions are running full throttle and people are exhausted. Added financial stress certainly does not help things. Perhaps the most powerful weapon the state can use besides its sword is its bank. Someone somewhere is pushing the financial buttons on Russia, and what bothers me is that this clearly efficacious move could in fact be turned against us. Those who live by the state die by the state. And for pretty much all of us, we are forced into doing business with the state, which is obviously far beyond what it should be doing. Could the powers that be empty your bank account, destroy your credit score, and absolutely ruin you? You understand that that was a rhetorical question. The point has been made. Things are, well, bad. 
the news headlines are erratic, and I'm pretty sure the rap, rapture index is about to blow. And that's really what I want to talk about this week. How are Christians responding to stress? How should Christians respond? Humanism, that ugly, distasteful belief that man is the measure of all things, is obviously not working. In fact, the heuristics coming from the politicians who are marching around doing whatever seems right in their own eyes is the very root cause of these issues. That's not to say that the church doesn't have repentance to do and that she doesn't have a whole lot of problems of her own. You all can join me in the repentance line, that's for sure. As my friend Ron said to me last year at the Pride event in D.C., we did this. Ron was right. We did do this. We failed to put forth and defend a social order based on the law word of God. We failed in our marriages, failed in educating our children, opting, opting instead to sending them to Caesar, and we failed at taking down the vain speculations of the world. We resigned and retreated instead of contending and resisting. Instead of putting forth the rigorous intellectual prowess of the Christian program bequeathed to us by the reformers, we huddled up with our pietistic hubris, tried real hard to escape the world only to wake up and find ourselves here in the mess for yet another day. As it stands right now, pastors like David Jeremiah and Greg Laurie are appealing to Matthew 24, which was fulfilled in the first century, stating that the end of days is at hand. Christians are trying to discern if the vaccine passports are the mark of the beast. They're trying to pinpoint who is the great antichrist and, you know, other where's, Wal where's Waldo nonsense. Uh, this escapist cult religion is looking for a way out, proof texting the scriptures with their erroneous presuppositions. Instead of putting together a coherent biblical response with strategies and tactics for Christian resistance, they're busy pulling out their end times charts. Perhaps the most notable pastor who teaches this escapist theology is Pastor John MacArthur. In fact, in a sermon from last year, which was brought to my attention on social media this week, he said this, As I assess some of the reasons for this, one glaring reason for the church to be preoccupied with the world is the absence of any vibrant expectation for the return of Jesus Christ. Weak eschatology leads to worldly church. When people lose sight of the fact that this is a fallen world careening ever deeper and deeper into sin, disintegrating continuously toward more and more evil. And when the church thinks that its role in the world is to stop that, it is living with a delusion. Our hope is not in fixing the world. Our hope is in the return of Jesus Christ. Now, I do have some level of appreciation for MacArthur, especially as he defends Reformed theology. And I do agree with him. Weak eschatology is a problem. But what he doesn't understand is that his eschatology is the one that is weak. For example, the dispensationalism that MacArthur espouses is very weak in that it strings together a bunch of assumptions from Scripture in order to explain why they don't want to labor in the world. MacArthur teaches that there's a gap in Daniel's 70 weeks, which is nowhere to be found in the text itself. 
He also teaches that this generation in Matthew 24, 34 is not the same this generation of Matthew eleven sixteen chapter 12, verse 41, 42, 45, and chapter 23, 36. And thus, in his apocalyptic eisegesis, he needs this generation in Matthew 24 to be anything but the generation to whom Jesus is speaking to. A dispensationalism that ignores the plain reading of the text with the obvious time indicators in context is, in fact, a house of cards. I also find it very troubling that MacArthur would equate being involved in the issues of the world as being worldliness. I wonder if his loaded bank account is worldliness. You can see the Neoplatonism in his argument. Yes, the world is careening into deeper sin, but is it wrong for the church to try and stop that? MacArthur thinks so. Aren't we, according to 2 Timothy 2.25, supposed to correct the opposers to the gospel with gentleness, praying that God would grant them repentance and lead them to truth? What about Jude's admonition to contend for the faith? I guess the Apostle Paul was living under a delusion when he told the Ephesians to expose the works of evil and darkness. To state the obvious, expose is a verb requiring action. When we expose the abortion holocaust and seek to rescue those who are being carried to the slaughter, are we delusional in thinking that we might, in MacArthur's words, stop that? He said at the end of the clip, our hope is not in fixing the world, our hope is in the return of Jesus Christ. Do you see the false dilemma? Surely MacArthur understands logical fallacies, surely he knows that he has committed the black or white fallacy with this statement. No one who cares deeply about injustice or cares deeply about the Great Commission thinks that our only hope is to fix the world. We especially don't trust in our own power. The hope is found in Christ, no doubt. But doesn't the Great Commission expect, no, demand from us that we teach the nations who to obey and how to obey the law word of God? Or was Jesus just kidding? Did Jesus expect them to obey the commission? Did he, like he said in Luke 19.13, expect us to occupy until he comes? Wouldn't occupying or doing business involve picking up a hammer, sweeping a floor, changing out a toilet, or posting on a website like this sermon from MacArthur? The reality is, pietists can never be consistent because the Neoplatonism isn't consistent. The ground motive of the Greek dialectic just doesn't work. We need a comprehensive Christianity, one that understands where history is going, one that can take down the empty philosophies of humanism, one that understands that the Lord trains our hands for war, and that like the judges, we are to learn war so that we might see the victory of Christ established on the earth, because Jesus does expect the Great Commission to be accomplished. And why does he expect it? Because the nations were given to him as an inheritance the moment he sat down next to the Father to rule and reign, what we call the ascension, in fulfillment of Psalm 2. The hope isn't the return of Christ. The hope is the covenantal arrangement of history now that the Lord Jesus has been established as Savior and King. The hope is that God will be faithful to his promises as history unfolds and as the church goes forth proclaiming the gospel. The hope is that God is true and every man a liar. The hope isn't that Christ returns to do our job for us, but that we have the grace necessary to do our job with his Holy Spirit guidance. 
The victory of Christ has already been won. Satan's sin and death has been objectively defeated. And now the church advances doing a cleanup job like those tribes who joined Gideon after the 300 men had wiped out the 120,000 Midianites. But MacArthur doesn't stop with his pontification on escapism. He goes after a very specific group of people, of which I am a part of, and I laugh because apparently our theological perspective is more of a threat than he dares to admit. A catastrophic collision is about to occur when he arrives on the earth. Mark it. History, mark it, does not quietly, gradually merge into some environmental meltdown. History does not quietly and gradually merge into the kingdom of Christ as the post-tribulationists, the reconstructionists, the theonomists and kingdom theologues would like us to believe. The kingdom comes with fury and viciousness in a cataclysmic, divisive intervention from heaven that happens in split seconds. MacArthur believes that the return of Christ is a cataclysmic event. He doesn't believe that history is to be sanctified in any meaningful sense. He said, quote, history does not quietly and gradually merge into the kingdom of Christ, end quote. And then he mentions us reconstructionists and postmillennialists and theonomists. But isn't that exactly what Jesus says? On one, on one level, I agree, history isn't gradually merging into the kingdom of Christ. Christ gradually emerged into history to establish his kingdom. That's a done deal. But that's beside the point. Didn't Jesus say that the kingdom of God was like a small mustard seed that gradually grows into trees where the birds, the nations, can rest? Wasn't he the one that said that the kingdom of God is like leaven, which is small, and grows into the whole loaf? What about Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 2, with the rock striking the statue and becoming a great mountain that filled the whole earth? We interpret Scripture with Scripture, and if Daniel 2 is about the first coming of Christ during the Roman Empire, which it is, when he established his kingdom, and if the kingdom grows slowly as Jesus tells us, isn't that exactly what Daniel is confirming as well? I get it. MacArthur needs the fury and viciousness of a calamitous return of Christ to justify both his obscuring of the kingdom, of which Jesus is not in voluntary exile now, but is, in fact, ruling and reigning now in his kingdom, which Daniel 7 confirms, and he also needs to justify his Neoplatonism. He has succumbed to the Thomistic dialectic of nature and grace. Now, he doesn't go on to explain the differences between Jesus coming to establish his a thousand-year kingdom and then what happens at the end of the thousand years, so it's unclear which part is cataclysmic and which part isn't. Perhaps it's both. But he appeals to Revelation 19 and Jesus being the rider on the white horse. In MacArthur's mind, this is the second coming of Christ, but a closer biblical analysis reveals that Revelation 19 is actually a description of the Son of Man reigning from heaven, the very sign that the tribes of the land would see. Revelation 19 is the triumphal march of Jesus as Babylon has been felled in the conquest of Jerusalem by Titus. What events bring together a battle, a victory, and a wedding march or procession? 
Well, AD 70 was the proof that Jesus is a true and not a false prophet and that no longer was the temple ceremonies to go on. The destruction proved the victory. The church is now the spirit-filled temple, the new Jerusalem. Eusebius himself, in his work Ecclesiastical History, notes the connection between the Olivet Discourse and the Jewish-Roman Wars, which were wrapped up in August of AD 70. Peter Lightheart says it best, quote, The triumphal procession in Revelation 19, 11-21 is the church moving out from the ruins of Jerusalem and Judea to conquer the entire world. It depicts a final surge of first-century mission as a triumphal procession of the heavenly hosts led by the conquering king. Mission always grows from martyrdom. When the world sees that, tri that triumphal march, they know that the Son of Man has come into his heavenly kingdom." End quote. Unfortunately, MacArthur and his dispensationalists miss the context of Revelation, and thus they miss out on the glorious symbols used therein. Jesus is the conquering king, and his victory procession is the task of all Christians in all nations. One writer said, quote, Jesus gathers nations, Satan is bound to prevent him from gathering nations, end quote. Instead of pulling out the charts and speculating about Gog and Magog, which has nothing to do with Russia, by the way, what ought the church to be doing? Instead of panic and fear, what are our options? First, it is important to understand the comprehensive nature of the gospel of the kingdom of God. If our gospel is re reduced to Greek metaphysics and dualism, then we're going to see zero advancement of the gospel in time and space. A gospel that drags you away from your calling to be salt and light in the world is not a gospel, it's an escape hatch. When Jesus came strolling into Galilee, he said in the Gospel of Mark, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He did not say, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God isn't really here yet. I have a few thousand years of history to spend in voluntary exile, and then I'll come back and initiate the kingdom. But don't let that confuse you. Just repent and trust me right now. Jesus preached the kingdom of God. And what is the kingdom of God? It's the mediatorial rule and reign of God through Christ, whose substitutionary death and victory secured his ascension in heaven as he reigns until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. The kingdom of God that Christ established 2,000 years ago is an entire social order that reflects the covenant law of God. It contains blueprints for how to function as an individual, how to function as a family, a church, and as a body politic. The blueprints are for the earth, not heaven. The Bible gives us marching orders for the here and now as we rule and reign with Christ. The preaching of the gospel is the preaching of the kingdom, and the preaching of the kingdom requires all men and all institutions to fall in line and obey the manual. We do not need prophecy prognosticators pontificating proudly about things they do not understand. We need faithful Christians laboring in the world, establishing communities that reflect the pulse of heaven. And this means that we will absolutely be involved in the very world that MacArthur so despises with his dualism. We will involve ourselves in issues of injustice, economics, business, monetary policy, abortion, and common law. Should MacArthur be consistent, he wouldn't have showed up in California courts winning a lawsuit against the state for their COVID policies. Why involve yourself in such worldliness? Why try to fix the world? 
Kingdom men will never retreat. We will advance. MacArthur won't because his hope is placed outside of space and time. Our hope, however, is placed in Jesus Christ, our King, who has intervened in space and time and established us as his vicegerents. The task before us is a big one, but when you have a comprehensive gospel to deal with the comprehensive evil in the world, you have what you need. So let's get to work. And now for our three headlines. First up, my friends at Children's Health Defense have been on the ball the past two years. When the mainstream media refuses to tell the truth, it's up to the courageous ones to get the word out. The situation now is no different. Reading from the Defender here, which is the CHD's news and reporting arm, quote, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration recently released a 10,000-page cachet of documents pertaining to the Emergency Youth Authorization, EUA, of the Pfizer BioNTech COVID vaccine. The documents provide more insight into the FDA's process for approving the vaccine and may also shed more light on the safety and efficacy of the vaccines and the number and nature of adverse effects that were observed during the clinical trials and the first months after the EUA was issued, end quote. Now, Pfizer and the FDA didn't just offer this information up, by the way. They're not that generous. The documents came as a result of a court order under the Freedom of Information Act, which was requested by PHMPT, that's the Public Health and Medical Professionals for Transparency. So what we find from the release is that there are 1,291 reasons people might have for not wanting to take the jabby jab. Over 1,200 possible adverse reactions are listed, which in my view ought to shut everyone up. The evangelical elites who demanded that everyone get the jab all in the name of loving your neighbor literally forsook that part of God's law that demands liability. Many of us were frustrated by the needless pressure being put on people to take an experimental drug with zero liability and no safety reports to be found. And why was that? Because, well, the world's on fire, don't you know? And if you don't get it, you'll kill grandma. Absolute nonsense. And it angers me. It angers me because are, are people like Ed Stetzer and the Gospel Coalition going to repent for literally advocating for the breaking of God's law in the name of their newly minted standard for loving one's neighbor? I doubt it. David French said that uh, we have hard hearts and that those of us anti-vaxxers or vaccine-hesitant people, we lack spiritual formation. They certainly won't apologize for the tens of thousands of people who have been injured by the jab and the thousands and thousands more who have died as a direct result of taking the jab. I expect a retraction from French after this bombshell release, but I'm not holding my breath. The insanity of it all, the, the billionaire elites like Gates and his puppy Fauci sure got rich off of this. Pfizer had made billions and billions of dollars. Quite literally, the Fed stole that money from us and gave it to a private company. It's just plain outrageous. Words uh, escape me. Uh, but here we are, proven right again. Autonomous humanism kills people. It's shameful. And I pray God's judgment against them. All right, next up, CNBC is reporting that, quote, record-breaking gas prices could be here to stay. Here's what a gallon of gas might cost you this summer. 
end quote. That's the headline. Last week, the 2008 record was broken as the average gallon of gas rose to $4.17. And as of this recording, I'm pretty sure it's already getting higher. Uh, officials, of course, are blaming Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And some new news outlets are reporting that the lack of wind energy, I saw this, is to blame, along with the cold winters in Europe the, the past two years. I kid you not. Uh, that's being said. Gas is up because wind is down, I guess. And, you know, the left's energy policies are the real problem here. Last week, the Biden administration announced that it isn't going to buy any more oil or gas from Russia, which is 8% of our refined gas import. You better believe the prices will go up. CNBC is reporting and saying that the gas prices will remain around $4 a gallon through 2022, but I don't, I don't think that's going to be the case. And we all know the real problem here. The real problem is the energy policies of the left. Do not forget that on Biden's first day, he shut down the Keystone Pipeline and 7,000 people lost their jobs. He literally stopped production. Newsweek reported last week that Biden revoked a key permit in June of 2020 after months of legal battles over the pipeline. When you shut that down and when you regulate the private sector to death, and when you broker a deal with Russia for Nord Stream 2, costs go up, obviously. And when you disrupt the supply chain like this, everything goes up because the costs are passed on to the consumer. We have millions of diesel trucks on the road delivering food and other goods to stores. And now those prices are going up, all in, all in the name really of a Green New Deal. Remember, our leaders, don't forget this, fly on their private jets overseas to attend climate change events because they care. We shouldn't dare question them. The climate change apologists are as bad as dispensationalists. Their doom and gloom messages are the same. So get ready. Fuel is going up along with inflation and try not to think too hard about how good we had it two years ago when gas was $1.65 a gallon. Oh, and while you're at it, make sure you're getting gold and silver. And I would be remiss not to urge you to buy Bitcoin as well. All right, next up, Big Country News is reporting about Representative Bruce Scoggs, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, Bill, HB 675, which would make it a felony in Idaho to provide gender-affirming medical treatment, including hormone therapy, to anyone under 18. It's not the first time we've seen a bill like this. It cleared a House committee last week. It should hit the House floor soon. Um, one young man who's pretending to be a woman, he said, quote, by voting yes on HB 675, you are voting to kill me and other kids just like me, end quote. A bit dramatic, young man, don't you think? Skog is an attorney in his very first term in Idaho, and he said, quote, this bill is about protecting children and adults who harm them. Uh, this is not a bill to take away treatment for the children that have gender dysphoria. It's a bill to get proper treatment and to prevent them from lifelong permanent decisions that will make them sterile and mutilate their bodies, end quote. Skog, like myself, believes in therapeutics like counseling. You know, for me, I would want religious presuppositions to be considered, but he is right. This so-called gender dysphoria is really just a fancy name for sin and the suppression of righteousness. Now, Certainly, there are, admittedly, situations where someone is born with both sets of genitalia or at least some form of biological confusion, and we have compassion, absolutely, for those situations. But this is 
often the same type of argument used for abortion. These exceptions, they say, must mean blanketed agreement across the board. And I'm saddened by this whole thing. I really am. But I do think the law of God is put in place to stop mad men from doing mad men things, like switching out their body parts. Kids should be protected from such nonsense. And in a lot of ways, the homo lust propagated by pop culture is contributing to the confusion on a grand scale. So folks who are genuinely, genuinely confused, they should be assisted, not, not mutilated. But this is a call, really, to parents to grow up and stop leading their children to hell. And we'll see very soon how this bill plays out. Now let's get to our final segment, theonomy or autonomy. The battle against humanism requires that we be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. In calling it a battle, I'm drawing attention to the great antithesis of Scripture found in the early parts of Genesis. God is the great thesis, and that which is in rebellion to him, Satan and man, is the antithesis, the antithesis. The antithesis that runs through the history of the world is the seed of the woman over against the seed of the serpent. The great proto-Euangelion of Genesis 3.15, the first gospel promise, the promise that the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, is the great war of theonomy and autonomy. In Genesis 3.5, the scene was set. Adam and Eve would insidiously declare their own autonomy by knowing and determining good and evil on their own terms and their own conditions. This declaration of self-sufficiency ran up against our true need, God-dependency. As subordinate creatures under the sovereign authority of God, Adam and Eve brought sin into the world. Thinking the serpent's words would be luminous to their perceived plight, it turns out that Adam and Eve fell into darkness and ruin, plunging the entire human race into this pungent condition. In a lot of ways, the battle between God and man works itself out primarily in philosophy a view of the world that either embraces God's sovereign authority, theonomy, or a view of the world that rejects God's sovereign authority, autonomy. Within this antithesis is the battle for ethics. Who will win the day? Will Christian ethics win out, or will the humanist version of ethics win? The gospel, of course, brings this to its only possible resolution. Enter the abortion debate. While abolitionists like myself continue to shed light on the most grotesque action imaginable, the butchering and dismembering of a child in the womb, we constantly find ourselves running up against this great antithesis. Proverbs 14.12 gives us a glimpse. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. It seems right to a man because... At the fall, Adam and Eve didn't seize all intellectual capacity. Rather, their intellectual capacity, their rationale, was corrupted. When you reject God, you can't think clearly and soberly, but you can think to some degree. Something may seem right to you, but that's the problem. You're deriving your ethics from, you know, you. And as I'm fond of saying, if you're the problem, you're definitely not the solution. Abortion advocates think there is a way that seems right. Do-it-yourself, at-home abortions through pills obtained freely by a vending machine at the college dorms, taxpayer-funded surgeries at the local murder mill, and so on. 
Perhaps most egregious is the mantra we hear all the time. My body, my choice. Question, is this really true? And if so, what is it based on? A video from Delegate Nick Freitas here in Virginia somehow made it to my inbox last week, and Freitas tackles the question quickly and simply. Let's watch. It never fails. I make a video about supporting individual liberty, and someone automatically comes on and says, what about abortion? Or says this, bet this argument doesn't extend to bodily autonomy. Actually, it does extend to bodily autonomy, and here's why. The moment you say my body, my choice, you're essentially assuming a couple of things. One, you're assuming you have ownership over your body. I got no problem with that. Secondly, you're also presuming that you bear some sort of responsibility for your voluntary actions. So here's the question. If you have ownership over your body, then presumably everyone else has ownership over their body. So what is a baby in the womb? Is it a portion of the mother? Is it a parasite? No, it's a separate autonomous entity, a human entity, which is living in a symbiotic relationship with the mother. So if two people using their bodies decide to engage in a voluntary action, which they know can bring about a pregnancy, well, then abortion is not you simply reasserting your bodily autonomy. It's actually violating the bodily autonomy of a third party who had nothing to do with whether or not they were put there. So I'm sorry, this argument just doesn't work the way you think it does. If you're paying attention, Mr. Freitas gives a very basic argument. For starters, a man does have bodily autonomy in that he or she is responsible for her actions. To whom much is given, much is required. You do have a body and you do have some level of freedom. But that freedom isn't without a leash. Freitas gives somewhat of a libertarian answer, but even that aspect of libertarianism is predicated on biblical law. What are those terms? Well, one, you do have ownership over your body in that you do have genuine authority over yourself given to you by God to steward because you are created in the image of God. The state did not give you that authority. God did. Second, because you are a thinking, feeling, doing image bearer, you do have some level of responsibility for the things you think, feel, and do. And what do free humans made in the image of God have? Volition. And what happens when that volition produces a child who is there under the volition of someone else? Do you presume, based on your bodily autonomy argument, that your volition and will is allowed to usurp theirs? If you say yes, then you don't believe in bodily autonomy. If you say no, then you've answered the abortion question correctly. Case closed, unless you don't believe in logic. As many abolitionists are fond of saying, the body inside your body is not your body. But here's the thing. They know this. They also know that it's murder, and they also do not care. This is because we are dealing with recalcitrant human autonomy on a grand scale. Proverbs 8.6 explains that those who hate God love death, which is also to say that the only logical end to autonomy is suicide. If you attempt to rid the world of God, you will eventually rid the world of man. Bodily autonomy is given to man to steward, not exploit. We are given this body, soul, and spirit makeup in order to glorify God with our bodies. It truly is a gift. But that all only goes so far, of course. There are rules and procedures that God gives his people. No one is permitted to murder anyone inside the womb or outside the womb. There are rules for living in God's creation. At the end of the day, the woman screaming, my body, my choice, is actually condemning herself. She does have bodily autonomy, but so does the girl inside her. And God will judge her accordingly as a murderer. Which is all to say that theonomy is always better than autonomy. Theonomy is always more superior than humanistic autonomy. 
when it comes to jurisprudence, ethics, and logic, theonomy always wins the day. Theonomy gives you true freedom, a freedom that is grounded in consistent ethics and predictable consequences. It gives you basic logic and stability in your intellectual pursuits. It gives you a foundation on which all your philosophizing can rest. Most importantly, theonomy as a consistent system that reflects the heart of God gives you the Lord of glory who forgives your sins and cleanses you from all unrighteousness. He fixes your logic, readjusts your presuppositions, and gives you way better grounding than your way, which seems sensible, but is in fact deadly. And so we insist upon it and cry out to God, asking him to act in this great abortion battle. That's it for this week. Thank you for watching and listening to Cross and Crown Radio. The Lord bless you and keep you. We'll see you next time.